Today we're continuing our series on final events, and we're looking at what the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy have to say in regards to the times in which we're living, and what can we expect? How can we be prepared for what is breaking on the world, and what should be our response to those things? And there's several things that we're going to be looking at. Last week was the end-time prophetic catalyst. Then today, the abomination of desolation. We mentioned it last time. We're going to try and unpack that a little bit more. Then the next time, I'll be preaching on the four stages of the Sunday Law. And then we have the New World Order, the little time of trouble, the latter rain and loud cry, the death decree, Jacob's time of trouble, God's people delivered, and then the second coming. But what we looked at last time was what will be the catalyst for end-time events. What will be the trigger And we saw how the midnight cry is synonymous with the loud cry, which is also synonymous with the siege of Jerusalem, the abomination of desolation, which we're going to go into a little more depth today. But all of that is talking and referring to the National Sunday Law. And that when the National Sunday Law breaks, it will be like dominoes, and the final events will be very rapid and will go very quickly. In fact, we had discussion last Saturday afternoon, well, how quickly do you think quickly will be? And we don't fully know how quickly. Uh, I do think of how Jesus was talking about the siege of Jerusalem and said, pray that it not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. He doesn't say, pray that it's not going to be through multiple winters, but just winters. That would almost lead me to believe we're going to be looking at less than a year of time. And those things are going to happen so quickly that if God didn't cut it short in righteousness, all would perish. And so I do think those last dominoes will fall very, very quickly. We also talked about all these things that we see around us, that you see around the dial there, whether there be natural disasters, wars, pandemics, lawlessness, riots, you name it, are all moving the needle a little bit closer to the National Sunday Law. And that's kind of the finger, if you will, that starts those last dominoes that I think will go very, very quickly. And so today's piece, part two, we are looking at, or it's entitled, The Siege of the Modern World. And so we'll jump in to that. It was November 2013. It was a Russian leased vessel, and it was traveling from Georgia to Mozambique, a place I wouldn't mind being on this cold January day. However, by some turn of events, the ship was abandoned, the cargo was offloaded and put into a port warehouse. In Beirut, Lebanon, it's a little north of the Holy Land on the Mediterranean Sea, part of the cargo was 2,750 tons, not pounds, but tons of ammonia nitrate used most commonly for fertilizer. Not a big deal. Let's just put it in the warehouse. Where should we put it? Probably over in the corner somewhere. That's where the contents sat for the next seven years until on August 4 of last year a fire started in the port warehouse at about 6 p.m. That was followed by a few small explosions but things soon went out of control and when it reached the abandoned stockpile of ammunition nitrate a huge explosion was felt more than 100 miles away. In a matter of seconds, about 5,000 people were injured and 154 people were presumed dead. You see, when you mix ammonium nitrate with 
some type of detonation, the result is explosive. Friends, I want to propose to you this morning that there are some things that should never be mixed. And when they are, the consequences can be devastating. The Bible speaks of not mixing the sacred with the common. The sacred. Well, that's God. That's His holy word. The things pertaining to and connected with God. Those things we say are sacred. And the common? Well, they're the things of this world. They're the secular things. And so we read in Ezekiel 22, verse 26, sadly, this is Ezekiel talking about Israel's wicked leaders. But what's the charge here? It says, her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They've not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. Here we get the idea that they are mixing. The line of demarcation has been blurred. And so what is sacred? Eh. What is common? Why not? And so we have holy and unholy, clean and unclean, secular and common. But when you mix the two together, I believe it has a devastating result. And the Bible has a word for that. It's abomination. When I think of abomination, I think of Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. He had the golden vessels that they had taken from the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem. And so these holy vessels, these cups and different things, and he filled them with fermented wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Friends, this was an abomination. And in that story, the hand begins to write on the wall. I think of Aaron, succumb to the pressures of the people in Exodus chapter 32. And so they constructed, or he constructed, a golden calf, probably had some assistance. And he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here they're claiming to worship the true God, but they're doing it in their own old heathen ways, on their own terms, with loud music, heavy beats, suggestive dancing, and sexual favors. They were mixing the sacred with the common. And this, again, was an abomination. And so today, how are we doing at keeping the two separate? You know, it used to be that most people would respect sacred things. Even if they didn't agree with them, I'll respect them. I think we can safely say not anymore. In fact, it seems the further you can push the envelope... And they have pushed the envelope in virtually every way. And so now the last thing that they're pushing towards is combining the sacred with the common in ways that are so detestable that we ask, is there anything sacred anymore? This would be what I would consider sacred music. I could put any number of pictures of of choirs or what have you. It's reverent. It's uplifting. It's praising the Lord. This, we could say, very easily is common or secular. But when you combine the two, here's a Christian rock band called Skillet, the Unleashed Tour. And this headline is from just this year. We are in war, Skillet rocker John Cooper is on a mission to combat chaos and defend biblical truth. Have mercy. 
Or how about these pictures that I don't want to leave on the screen very long? Five rock legends you probably didn't know are Christians. Does he look like a Christian there in the middle? And how about this rock star here on either side, really? One is supposed to be depicted of Jesus with a nail print in his hands and the guitar. The other is trying to obviously be like Jesus, but he's all covered in tattoos with skulls on his shoulder. Friends, this is an abomination. Matthew 7, 16, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you shall know them by their fruits. And so again, abomination is this combining of the sacred with the common. And I don't know about you, but it's one thing for things to be common. But I get highly bothered and agitated when people mix the sacred with the common. There's certain curse words that I can tolerate in certain settings and let go, and there's others I have a much harder time letting go. And so in today's piece, the abomination of desolation, what is that referring to exactly? And we touched on it last time, but we're going to go a little bit more in depth this morning. And we'll find here that three times in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation. So I hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to do some Bible study this morning. And we want to look at these three times in the Gospels to begin our study. And so the first one, if you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in chapter 24. It's a well-known passage when the disciples are asking what the end of time will look like. And so we pick up here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and we read, And this Gospel of the Kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, there it is, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so Jesus is saying the gospel will go to the whole world and then the end will come. And then he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then you need to flee. And notice Jesus also here is telling us to go back to the book of Daniel, to read it, to understand it. And so we're going to do that this morning as well. But before we do, there's a second passage that I want to look at that mentions the abomination of desolation. Mark 13, so you're in Matthew, just turn to Mark, chapter 13, verse 14, and there we read in Mark, chapter 13, verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where he ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now this sounds... Virtually the same, but it's a little bit different. Instead of saying, standing in the holy place, this one reads, standing where one ought not. Do you see that difference? Basically, standing where he's not supposed to. Now let's turn to the third one. We've been in Matthew, Mark, now we're turning to Luke, chapter 21, and now we're in verse 20. Luke Chapter 21, verse 20, and there we read, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. So again, very similar, same idea, but let's compare these three now. When it's referring to the abomination of desolation, in Matthew 24, we see standing in the holy place. In Mark 13, we see standing where it ought not. And in Luke 21, surrounded by armies. What's going on? Well, we need to recognize, first of all, that Jesus is masterfully weaving this initial application of the destruction of Jerusalem with the time of the end. Going back in history, we can know the initial fulfillment is when Jerusalem was taken over by the Roman army. Great controversy, page 25, says, Jesus declared to the listening disciples, the judgments that were to fall upon apostate Israel, and especially the retributive vengeance that would come upon them for their rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. Retribution is coming because they have rejected and crucified the Messiah. Continuing on, unmistakable signs would precede the awful climax. The dreaded hour would come suddenly and swiftly, and the Savior warned his followers, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation... Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whosoever readeth, let him understand. Then let them, which is in Judea, flee into the mountains. And so he's quoting these same verses we just read. And it says, when the idolatrous standards of the Romans should be set up in the holy ground, which extended some furlongs outside the city walls, then the followers of Christ were to find safety in flight. Now notice in this quotation that the holy place is a territory of ground outside the city wall of Jerusalem that extended some furlongs outside of the city walls. And so we can then put together this idea. We're not talking about the holy place of the sanctuary. We're talking about this area around Jerusalem, God's people. And this holy place, this holy ground, extends some furlongs outside of the city. And so that matches up with the Roman army standing where they ought not stand, according to Mark 13, 14. And then when we finish the quote, when the warning sign should be seen, those who would escape must make no delay. Throughout the land of Judea, as well as in Jerusalem itself, the signal for flight must be immediately obeyed. And he who chanced to be upon the housetop must not go down to his house, even to save his most valued treasures. Those who are working in the fields or vineyards must not take time to return for the outer garment laid aside while they should be toiling in the heat of the day. They must not hesitate a moment, lest they be involved in the general destruction." Keep all of that in mind as we see not just this initial application, but other applications. That when that time comes, you don't have time to get more oil. Five foolish versions. You don't have time to go back for treasured possessions. You don't even have time to pick up your cloak, and it's right over there. He says you depart lest you be involved in the general destruction. And so here, the spirit of prophecy makes it very clear that when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, and when they're standing on the holy territory or holy space, again, not the holy place of the sanctuary, as some people get confused with, 
This is some furlongs outside the city of Jerusalem. And when you see these things, the abomination of desolation is at hand. So the immediate fulfillment, this abomination of having the idolatrous Roman standards of the Roman army, you have pagan idols on their standards that are placed on this holy ground just outside the city of Jerusalem. This is an abomination. This is God's people. This is God's land. This is the promised land. And here you have pagans entering in. This is abomination. And after that abomination takes place, when they are encompassed around Jerusalem, when they are standing where they ought not be, then the desolation or destruction of Jerusalem follows. Does that make sense? So first you have abomination, then you have desolation. And when you see the abomination, you flee, lest you become part of the desolation. And so that's what the abomination of desolation means in its immediate application of those three Gospels, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Because according to the Quote we just read, the Jews rejected the Messiah. Sometimes people like to say, well, the Jews actually never had a close of probation, that they continue to be the Israel of God even today. And we Gentiles simply join them, and that's not true. Their probation closed as a nation in 34 AD, and the execution of the close of probation took place when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, Jews certainly can be saved, but they as a nation are not the chosen of God any longer. The Christian church is the Israel of God. And so from 34 AD through the second coming of Jesus, it's the Christian church, his chosen people, the remnant, we could say. But then we have to ask, if the abomination of desolation is simply something in Scripture that has already been fulfilled... What do we care about it today? Well, there's that other piece. Jesus mentions when you study the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Read and understand. And so we need to do that because perhaps, and I think we will see very clearly, there are other applications to this abomination of desolation. And so let's go to the next passage I want to look at here. It's in Daniel chapter 9. And I will confess these passages can get rather heady at times. And my fear is that I'll lose you in the forest for the trees or whatever the saying is. But we're going to do our best here by God's grace to make this plain. So we're in Daniel chapter 9, beginning verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people. That's 457 B.C. to 34 A.D. For your people, that's still the Jewish nation, for your holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. All of these six point to the Messiah. To seal up means to confirm the vision and the prophecy about him. Then verse 25 says, Knowing therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we know that to be 457 B.C., until Messiah the Prince, which that reference really means the Anointed One. We know when Jesus was anointed at His baptism. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven comes first, then 62 The street shall be built again and the wall, even in the troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, which is the second part of this, 
right? We have seven weeks first, then the 62, you put them together, you have 69. What it's saying is at the end of this period of time, at the end of the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That's the cross, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, which we know to be Titus, who is coming, shall destroy the city, which is Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations, there's the word, are determined. Continuing verse 27, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations, there's the other word, shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so we have abominations, we have desolation there, talking about destruction of Jerusalem. And so here what we have, in the second half, verse 26, in the second half, verse 27, we see the abomination of desolation. In reference to, again, the destruction of Jerusalem, tied directly with Messiah being cut off. And so I think we're familiar with these graphs. We have the 2,300 days, we have the 70 weeks here. But then here, and what we just read was a 7 plus 62, which is 69 weeks. And we, that takes from 457 to 27 AD. Then we have that last week that's cut in half. And in the middle, we have Jesus crucified. At the front, we have his baptism. In the end, we have the, the gospel of the Gentiles. And then we have this idea that 70 weeks are determined for your people, but that probationary time when the Jewish nation would reject Jesus, signified by the stoning of Stephen, we see this prince, Titus, come and destroy the city, Jerusalem, and its beautiful temple as a judgment for the Jews, rejecting the Messiah. And this, again, is confirmed in the book of Daniel as the abomination of desolation. And both those words are used. And that's exactly what happened. Remembering again that probation closed in 34 AD with the stoning of Stephen, but the execution of that close of probation took place in 70 AD. So the nation of Rome came and destroyed the Jewish nation. History tells us that Titus wanted to preserve the temple, but when that time came, nothing could stop the people. And it too was completely destroyed according to the prophecy. So here again in Daniel, we see the initial application of the abomination of desolation. But there's more to the story. And so I'm going to put on this chart as we move along. We have this initial application, the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD by pagan Roman Empire. And that's the initial fulfillment. But we have some other places in Daniel that describe the abomination of desolation. So in following the counsel of Jesus, we want to look at those too, don't we? And so let's turn a few pages over to Daniel chapter 11. This is the second place that the abomination of desolation is mentioned. And some get confused. But this is not, as we'll see, the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Let's read it. Daniel chapter 11, verse 20. And we're not going to read all these verses because the detail will be too overwhelming. But it says, There shall arise, signifying Rome coming after Greece, There shall arise in this place one who imposes taxes. Remember Mary and Joseph fled to Bethlehem because of taxes. On the glorious kingdom, that's Israel. But within a few days, he shall be destroyed. Referring to Caesar Augustus. But not in anger or in battle. Verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. That's Tiberius Caesar. 
But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. When the force of a flood, which is Titus, the Roman general, they, God's people, shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Skipping down, let your eyes drop down to verse 31. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. They shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And then verse 36. Then the king, this is the Antichrist power, shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. This is the second application now of the abomination of desolation, and it's not the siege of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This is a different historical fulfillment. And if you study Daniel 11 closely, the king of the south, in relation to Israel, all of this is in relation to Israel, is Egypt and represents defiance, rebellion against God. The king of the north, in relation again to Israel, is Babylon and stands for spiritual confusion and religious apostasy, And by the time we get to verse 20, Rome is introduced as the next world empire following Greece. And as we read those verses that we just read, when the prince of the covenant, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the sacred Jewish temple was split in two. The presence of God departed from the temple. Remember what Christ said? Your house will be left to you desolate. And that's exactly what happened. And when you had the stoning of Stephen in 34 AD, Israel was no longer the chosen people of God. And so following this, we would expect to see the focus of chapter 11 to be on an apostate religious and political power that would arise following the breakup of Rome and a departure from the truths of God. And that's exactly what we find. And so by the time we get to verse 31, what did it say? It says, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary. Fortress, and then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Friends, the sanctuary was the object lesson illustrating God's plan for salvation. In fact, it's the sanctuary that helps us understand how the common can become sacred through the power of Jesus Christ, through the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. The sanctuary here in this verse, though, is now polluted by putting a new system of human works in the place of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The priest who officiate in the sanctuary, also representing Jesus and his ministry in the plan of salvation. The sanctuary is polluted. The symbols of Jesus are replaced. And so now we put a human priest between the individual and God. And we're elevating the human priest to a position reserved for God alone. And 36 further fleshes it out. That this king is the Antichrist power that would arise to pollute the sanctuary. He would follow his own defiance of God's law. He would exalt and magnify himself above God. He would speak blasphemies against God. This Antichrist power will grow and prosper as a religious power right until the end of this prophecy. This power would lead men and women from the truth that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. 
It would establish a system of penances and works to earn salvation. And it would attempt to change God's law. So if you study this out, Daniel eleven thirty one speaks of this union of church and state in which the decree of Justinian in 538 allowed the bishop of Rome or the church to have control over the state. Kind of a big deal. And this was the beginning of papal supremacy for the next 1,260 years, all the way to 1798, when Napoleon took the Pope captive. This is the second fulfillment, if you will, of the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel 11.31. The abomination is the papacy taking the place or the prerogatives of God that led to the desolation, which is the 1,260 years that followed, which is the persecution of the saints, those that don't go along with the abomination, if you will. Now, Daniel 12, 11 also mentions this abomination of desolation in connection with two prophecies. And if we're not careful, we'll get bogged down in that. But we can read it briefly because I think if we're not careful, this can be a springboard for a lot of heresy and a lot of false assumptions. But turn with me to, to Daniel 12. For me, it's just a page turn. Verse 11 and 12, and it says, And from that time the daily sacrifice is taken away, almost identical verbiage, and the abomination of desolation is set up there, shall be 1,290 days. And then verse 12, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. We're not as familiar with those dates. We don't see those in our evangelistic sermons so much. And so people are real quick to grab those dates and to project them off into the future. And this means this and it means that. And it predicts when the Sunday law is going to come. And it predicts when the Pope's going to do this and the president's going to do that. Now, it would take a long time to unpack this. And I can recommend some books that do. But to take a very simple look at this, the wording is almost identical to Daniel eleven thirty one, And I would propose to you they're talking about the same event. And so what about these two time prophecies that we never hear about? This would be a simple explanation. They both start in 508. You add the 1290, it brings you to 1798, when God's people were no longer scattered, or when the papacy had its deadly wound. The other, the 1335, same starting date, 508, you add to that, it takes you to 1843, Those that were part of this Millerite movement in 1843 and came to the point would receive a special blessing. I believe that is really what these two are talking about. And it gets into Clovis and marrying, you know, and becoming Catholic and all these other things, and we could get into all of that. But my biggest fear is that people will take these two numbers and they'll assign them wherever they want and come up with any host of errors. So while this is not necessarily proof, I want to show you some Spirit of Prophecy quotes that are, because the fact is that there was a video that went viral several years ago since the Pope came to the United States. 200,000 people watched this video, and it used these numbers to pinpoint, again, the National Sunday Law, and exactly when Jesus would come, and all these different things. But notice what Spirit of Prophecy tells us, which I think is so helpful. 
If you get nothing else from Daniel 12 and these verses, notice this. Early writings, page 75, says, Time has not been a test since 1844. That pretty well should sum it up right there. Time has not been a test since 1844, and it will never again be a test. The wording is virtually the same. It goes back to the same time. It has a little bit of a different start date and so on. But it's talking about that second abomination of desolation. That's what it's talking about. And in case you doubt that, look at this quote. Time will never again be a test. The Lord has shown me that the message of the third angel must go and be proclaimed to the scattered children of the Lord. But it must not be hung on time. Continuing on, I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time. But the third angel's message is stronger than time can be. So those who are reapplying the 1260 and the 1290 and the 1335 to literal prophecies on into the future, friends, those are false teachers. Mark Finley likes to refer to these things as the vaccine, if you will. We can pull this out of Revelation as well when we see this great disappointment and so on. And it says there'll be no more time. Same idea. This is the vaccine for a thousand heresies, Mark Finley says. Why? Because if you know at 1844, time prophecy is done. We have things that still need to be fulfilled, like the National Sunday Law, but it's not based on time. It will happen when it happens. But we're not to predict it. Continuing, I I saw this message can stand on its own foundation and needs not time to strengthen it and that it will go in mighty power and do its work and will be cut short in righteousness, end quote. Another place, Manuscripts Release, volume 16, page 208. Some guy was doing exactly what we were talking about, reassigning these dates, and for him it was the 1335. And Ellen White says, we told him, Brother Hewitt, of some of his errors in the past, that the 1335 days were ended and numerous errors of his as well. So he was coming up with this application, and she says, no, it's error. Last day events, page 36. It says, our position has been one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of the prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of our Lord's coming. End quote. So I get people all the time. Pastor, I got these charts. I've put them together and I've connected this to this to this using and in Daniel 12 and this over here and they try and outline the whole thing. And in my mind, you know what I'm saying to myself? False teacher. It's not true because they're basing the whole thing on time and you can do the same thing. Because at the end of time, everybody's going to be looking and searching and trying to put everything and put together and we have new light and all these other... I'm fine with new light. Just make sure it lines up with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And the Bible and the spirit of prophecy tell us it's not going to be based on time. Okay, so we need to keep going. We have the initial fulfillment of the abomination of desolation, the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, and its idolatrous standards on the holy ground surrounding Jerusalem, and they completely destroy the city. In Daniel 11, we have a second application of the abomination of desolation being the union of church and state, beginning in 538 to 1798, in which the abomination was the papacy, taking over the prerogatives of God, exalting himself above God, and speaking blasphemies against God. And the desolation was the persecution of the saints, 
50 to 68 million is the estimated number of Christians killed in the Dark Ages. Friends, that's desolation because they didn't go along with the abomination of the union of church and state. But there's one more time it's referred to in Daniel. And the spirit of prophecy refers to this third or final fulfillment here in Manuscripts Release, Volume 13, page 394. It says, The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy, what's the words? Will be repeated. It doesn't say to the letter. It says much of. So there's probably some major pieces, be it union of church and state, that will be repeated. Again, this idea seems similar. Does it say exactly? No, but seems similar to those described in these words will take place. And if you look at this quote in its context, he's referring specifically to Daniel eleven thirty-one to 36, the verses that we were just looking at. So scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. And so we have a clue that in the future there is a similarity or something similar will happen. And it's not identical. But we should be looking for another church and state union. So let me ask you, when the papacy received a deadly wound in 1798, yes, it no longer has power over the state today. It's still a church and the deadly wound has virtually healed before our eyes. But at the end of the world, we get a hint that church and state will unite again in a final abomination that is followed by desolation. And when you see the abomination, don't go back. Don't think that there's still time. No, the dominoes are now falling in rapid succession. And so if you're still in Daniel, we're in chapter 11, verse 40 and 41. And it says, At the time of the end, the king of the south, not so much Egypt, but what Egypt represented at this point. We have secular humanism. We have culture. We have atheism. Yet we have all these ideas shall attack him in reference to the king of the north or the papacy. Some believe this to be the deadly wound, which I personally do, in 1798. But some feel it would also refer to the French Revolution about the same time. Some feel this is referring to the teachings of Darwin, the rise of communism. All of these things, though, all of this secular materialism, godlessness, and humanism is attacking. But notice what happens. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. That's the papacy. With chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. And it says, and he shall also enter the glorious land. Now some like to say, oh, the glorious land. That's Jerusalem. No, it used to be Jerusalem. But now we're spiritual Israel. Right? And so the papacy enters into the territory of God's people. 
for the purpose of conquering them. How? Through a law that will force God's people to sever their allegiance with the God of heaven, which is the fourth commandment, the sign that we are God's people by following a man-made law that shows that the papacy has power over the church in the state. And that is what we call the mark of the beast, the national Sunday law, the renewal, if you will, of the abomination of desolation. And it's right there in verse 41. And as we continue on, he'll try to destroy and to annihilate many. That's the death decree. But at the very end of the chapter, it says, But he, the papacy, shall come to his end, and no one will help him. And so we have these three fulfillments of this abomination of desolation. The initial fulfillment, siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. We have the second application, the union of church and state during the Dark Ages. And then we have this end-time application, this Sunday law. And what is the abomination? The abomination is that a law is passed that proclaims or mixes a common secular day, Sunday, with God's sacred holy Sabbath of the fourth commandment. And that, my friends, is an abomination. And then we see desolation that follows, as spoken of, not just here, the death decree, but in Revelation 13, 15, the same idea. Any that don't go along with the image of the beast, God's people will be threatened with death. But the good news is, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. The last verse of Daniel 11. Friends, all of this concludes with Michael standing up to rescue his people, not from some Middle East conflict, but from a global war between the commandments of God and the commandments of men, of the sacred and of the common, over allegiance to God or over allegiance to men. So at the end of time, it's not the siege of Jerusalem, it's the siege of the modern world. As the enemy surrounds God's people and any and everyone on the planet who is keeping the commandments of God and as the testimony of Jesus will have to choose. Friends, that's the final abomination of desolation. Volume 5 of the Testimonies. We read this last time, 464 and 465. It is no time now for God's people to be fixing their affections or laying up their treasure in the world. The time is not far distant when, like the early disciples, we shall be forced to seek a refuge in desolate and solitary places. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for the flight of the Judean Christians, so the assumption of power on the part of our nation in the the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. The assumption of power on the part of our nation in the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us, just like the siege of Jerusalem. And that's the abomination of desolation. That's the end-time application of the abomination of desolation. That's the national Sunday law. It will then be time to leave the large cities, preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes and secular places among the mountains. And you won't have time to make a plan at that point. You just have to go. And now instead of seeking expensive dwellings here, we should be preparing to move to a better country, even a heavenly. Instead of spending our means in self-gratification, we should be studying to economize. Every talent lent of God should be used to his glory in giving the warning to the world. And so, friends, as we see these things taking place in our world, what type of people ought we to be? One last connection here in Matthew 24, 14 to 15. I know we're already there. 
But I want to go back and answering this question, what type of people ought we to be? Matthew 24, 14 and 15. You know these verses well. Verse 15 mentions the abomination of desolation, and right before that it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Friends, there's a key connection here. And the application for end time, for our time, is that God's people are going to take the gospel to the world for a witness. It's not simply going to be a declaration. There's going to be seen a demonstration. And that final demonstration of the gospel we see spoken of in Revelation 18.1 where an angel comes down from heaven having great power, having great authority and the earth is lightened or illuminated with his glory, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit where the gospel is not only preached but it is demonstrated. And how is it demonstrated? In your life and in mine. This quote from Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, you know it well. Christ is waiting with longing desire. And what's he waiting for? Is he waiting for the Pope and the President to form some conspiracy to form a national Sunday law? No, it says Christ is waiting with longing desire for a manifestation of himself in his church. That's what he's waiting for. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he'll come, claim them as his own. Friends, God is waiting for a people that can give the gospel as a witness with the fruits of the Spirit, as a demonstration of what God's character is like. And we want to be filled with the Spirit, don't we? We want to have extra oil, the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, so that we can rightly reflect Christ and receive the seal of the living God. Some of you might be saying... I want to do that, but I just don't know how to do that. What do I do? What does that look like? Christ is waiting for the manifestation of himself in his church, in me, when the character of Christ will be perfectly reproduced in me? How is that even possible? And I go back to our scripture reading this morning that Nicholas read to us. The parable of the growing seed, and he said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. But this is the point. The seed sprouts and it grows, but he himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. What is that saying? That's saying as the farmer... I take the seed, which could be my sustenance, right? I could turn it into bread or something else, but I cast the seed out. I'm doing the work God's asking me to do. I'm making myself available to him. And so as a farmer, I do everything I know how to do. I need sunlight. I need to clear maybe some trees. I'm going to water things. But at the end of the day, what makes this seed? I mean, it says on the thing, it's going to be a tomato. What makes this seed turn into a tomato? I don't know, and you don't know. It's a miracle of God. 
What's going to turn this common pastor into a sacred vessel for the Holy Spirit to dwell in that I might demonstrate to the world the character of Christ? I don't know. Except it's a miracle of God. I do the things that I know and trust that he'll do the things that I can't fathom or understand. How do you make a tomato or a cucumber or or corn or watermelon or, or anything? How do you get the fruits of the Spirit? You trust in God. You make yourself available to God and he will do the work in you. So are we willing to surrender all? To place all on the altar? I don't know about you, but by the grace of God, I too want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to have extra oil. I want there to be fruits in my life. And I pray that you do too. So that we as a church can fulfill what God is waiting for. Not some backroom conspiracy that will be revealed He's waiting for his church to fully represent him. Not just in proclamation, but in demonstration. And while I don't fully know what that looks like, I know that God's going to be the one that's going to do it if we make ourselves available. And so if that's your desire, if you want to be part of that group, that in the midst of the time of earth's history that we find ourselves, to say, Lord, I want to be yours. I want to stop mixing the the common with the sacred. I want to be totally yours. Dear Heavenly Father, we believe you're coming soon. And we've been reminded again today that the final abomination of desolation could happen very soon. And then again, the final moments will be rapid ones. But Lord, you're waiting on your church to not just proclaim, but to demonstrate your character to the world. Lord, that's an overwhelming thought. But that simple parable in Mark 4 has reminded us that though we do not know how, you do the work in us as we make ourselves available. And then the last verse of that beautiful parable says, but when the grain ripens, when the characters ripen, when your character is shown to the world, it says immediately, He, Jesus, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Lord, do the work in me today is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.